you might put on a, a false persona on the outside, but God knows what's on the inside. Hello, this is the Adventure Through the Bible podcast. My name is Matt. Today with me, I have Tracy. Good morning. And I have Karen. Hello. Hello, everybody. <laughs> that sounded dopey. Hello, everybody. <laughs> We're used to it. It's fine. It's your allergies. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say it was his personality, but okay, you're way nicer than me. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, gosh. Oh, so, yeah, it is good to be back, and everybody's ready, raring to go. Is that what we I have? Am? I'm raring to, raring to go. Okay. Always. Always, Karen. So, but, uh, yeah, we've got some blue skies today. The sun is shining, and the temperatures are starting to cool off just a little bit. It's kind of nice. I'm, yes, you know, nice. for the... Go ahead. A nice break from our, what, about two, three weeks of 100 degree, 90 plus degree weather? Yeah, yep. it's, been, uh, it's been a hoot. And a half. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, I was going somewhere with that. I don't remember where I was going. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. Oh, yeah. This is the first summer in a long time. I used to always say every summer, you know what, I'm not going to complain about the heat because I I hate cold even more than heat, but this year I am officially ready for fall to start. I am kind of sick of summer. Maybe it's all the other things going on in the world around it, but I'm ready for some cooler air in my lungs. Well, you're kind of, I think you're kind of exposed to whatever the ambient temperature is with your line of work. I think you probably spend some more, you probably spend more time stuck in it than probably either me or Tracy do. Yeah. It's true. You know, wintertime comes around and it starts to snow. And so, so many people are around me like, oh, isn't it beautiful? And I just go, mm hmm. Yeah, it's great. It's just wonderful. Love it. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but that's usually people who are sitting in an office looking out a window. You know, maybe they're going to go skiing. So they get to go out and play in it. And I look at it and I go, uh. <laughs> It's true, though. It's true. I do kind of my body just kind of has to adjust to whatever's going on. And these last these last couple of weeks, just it's just been so hot. It's just it takes forever for me to be able to cool down at the end of the day. And it's just uncomfortable. I don't like it. And, um, it well, is what it is. They say as people age, they become less adaptable. So well, I, it's just yeah, I don't know. I'm just I'm slow. I'm, I'm slower to adapt. I'm slower than anybody else around me, too. I, I can I can. I can stay without a coat longer than other people, and then once my body adapts to that, then it takes me longer to be able to take the coat off. So, you know, it's just, uh, just I guess it's just because of my environment. It is what it is. Anyway, now that we've lost half of our audience with that amazing <laughs> with our weather report, yeah, weather report. <laughs> it's going to be sunny and warm today. Well. We are continuing in the book of Numbers today, uh, Numbers chapter 21 through 25. And uh, chapter 21, well, there's a brief little section here about how the Canaanites got defeated at Hormah. So the king of Arad, he decides, I don't like the look of these Israelites. They are coming too close to my land. 
I think I'll go out and uh, take some prisoners. And uh, Israel says, well, God, we will destroy that city if you will uh, give those Canaanites to us. And says the Lord listened and Israel destroyed them. And the place from then on was called Horma, which meant utter destruction. So that's a that's a w- wonderful little uh, way to remember a battle, I guess. Let's just rename it Utter Destruction. Fun, fun, fun. Anyway, it's only like three. That whole that whole story is only like three verses long. Very so, kind of interesting. Here, not too long ago, you know, the Israelites had wanted to go through some place, and they said no, and they they moved around it. But this time, well, they weren't even trying to go through. The guy just came and attacked them, and they were ready for it. Now, the next... What? That you said that they were ready is because, you know, even though it was three verses, it made it very clear right in the middle in verse two that, you know what? They asked the Lord. And I think that was the problem, this whole stretch in the wilderness, is that they weren't doing that. They were trying to lean on themselves. Yeah. And that, you know, at this point, they're like, okay... You know what? You made the promise in the other generation that, you know, you were going to give it to us. So now, if it's your will, let us give us these Canaanites. Yeah, you're 100% right there. They uh, they didn't just take it upon themselves to go attack a rod. They they asked they asked God. And even this time, it was even after the after they had already been they had been attacked. Well, the next story in here is actually really interesting. It's called the Bronze Serpent. It starts out with Israel complaining again. It's not the last time they'll complain, but they're complaining again. It says that God sends some snakes that bite and kill a lot of people. And God comes up with this interesting solution for them. He says, make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live now tracy this this symbol this image is probably fairly familiar to you as caduceus yeah right so so explain explain it a little bit to our listeners here as far as well what it looks like what it uh, represents for the medical field so it's two um it's two serpents that kind of twist around um i can't even is it like a Pole or yeah, and then um, it's like it, it tends to be just the whole, uh, I guess, kind of serving humanity and public and medicine. The Navy uses it for the Caduceus for the hospital corps. I don't know. Yeah. If you look back at serpents too, you know, I think it's kind of ironic too that coming out of Egypt, where the serpent was a huge, huge, um, oh god, like. I would almost say just like an image, a graven image almost to the Egyptians that that this was used. But what I what I took from this too is that they have not had any encounters with serpents up until this point, which I thought Nothing was kind of, which was kind of interesting that you know what the Lord was in control of all of that at this you know taking them through the wilderness in that they never had this problem before. Yeah, nothing we heard of, at least not nothing to this extent for sure. So yeah, you know this... what I always think of when I read this story, and the story is really interesting to me. But like, I found the first, I find it very ironic that they're 
that the sh- there's a shape of the thing that's killing them mm-hmm. it's wrapped around a pole and raised up and all they have to do is look at it right so there's an there's an act of faith here but like what the it always baffled me why 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 raise up an image for them to look at that is the thing that's killing them like what's the significance there mm-hmm. and i said that at church one day and um, a fellow that i think all of us know martin said well but that's what jesus did for us he became the thing that was killing us right mm-hmm. so i if i am lifted up will draw men unto me right there's that aspect right. of it there's also there's also the aspect of it is you know god made him what who had not sinned to become sin for us so that for him we might have righteousness so jesus became the thing that was destroying us and then there's the whole like you know fixing fixing our eyes on jesus the author and pioneer of our faith and it's all it's all just very symbolic and when i thought of it as jesus became sin and was lifted up and all who raise their eyes to him will be drawn to him and saved, right? So if I combine that idea in my head with what happened to the Israelites, it kind of becomes kind of beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a verse in John 3. It says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Yeah. I'm with I'm with you, Karen. I, I, I often looked at that. And I looked at this image, and in my mind, the, the the idea of a serpent always brought up images of Satan. Yes, exactly. You know, and why on earth would we be looking at something that would be associated to Satan, and that is what would, and that's what would save us? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> now, here's the way I had it described to me once. This is a community, largely of shepherds, right? A snake, snakes were, you know, they were kind of the enemy of the shepherds. They they would, as we know, they would bite, they would kill people. But when somebody killed a snake, the way they would dispose of it would be to reach out with a pole, lift the thing up on a pole and carry it out of the, out of the camp, out of the area, away from other people. So a snake, a serpent on a pole was a defeated serpent. Oh, that's interesting. That's yeah. Cool I like both of those perspectives. Mm-hmm. So, so that's why we can look at a at a at a, def- a serpent up on a pole and equate it with Jesus when the serpent itself, all by itself, generally makes us think of Satan and the one who started sin. Is that now that serpent has been defeated? And the act of faith, obviously, I mean, I think we could probably clarify with Tracy that there's nothing actually physically healing about lifting your eyes and looking at a thing. Have you, ever, have you ever written a prescription for that, Tracy? Go look up, look at a serpent up on a pole. No, no, I have not. Okay. <laughs> so, so, okay. Well, since Tracy has experienced all things and knows all things, I think we can now safely assume that this is an act of faith. Like, it's your it made you well. You know, as we're going through this and we come up with these these meanings that are, you know, in the Bible, like we've been we've been going through and and what we're reading currently. And if you go up and look up Caduceus, it has it says nothing about that. This it has it all etched in Greek and Egyptian mythology. 
Mm. Really? Yes. And even to the point of the crossing snakes as being part of the double helix and DNA doesn't mention anything about the Bible. Well, then they missed a wonderful opportunity to draw a pretty analogy. There you go. An entire industry missed it. Why didn't they call us and ask? <laughs> I think just dig a little deeper. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I guess I always just assumed it came from right here. But I, I have heard, I did know that there were some Greek, there were some Greek uh, uh-huh. ties too. I guess maybe it was just such a, maybe it was just a really common image already. The Rod of Hermes. Mm. was a winged staff, had two snakes wrapped around it. And that's interesting that they would adopt that for medicine, because right. yeah, Hermes me- was the messenger, messenger right? Gods, the conductor of the dead and the protector of merchants and thieves. Interesting. Wow. Huh. Well, who knew? I didn't know. Somebody probably yeah. knew. Somebody so out there is... They're like kind of scrolling through really quick, and it, I, like I said, I'm looking through here, and I don't see one reference to the bible or the exodus or moses not once interesting and that's just of course just a you know quick general search but still yeah huh wow well anyway it is it's an interesting it's an interesting uh image to have in our head the idea of of this thing to look at and to get healed and to be safe from that serpent all you have to do is look at what essentially is a defeated serpent and understand that it's not going, it doesn't have to be the thing that rules your life. You can, you can kind of set it aside. And uh, of course it doesn't mean nobody had to be careful around snakes, but it wasn't necessarily the death sentence that it had been. All right. Well, the next section here is called from Mount Hor to Moab. Now the, um, there's not a lot here. So, but the one thing here that does interest me, though, it, there was a mention in verse 14 about the book of the wars of the Lord. Did you guys see that? I want to read that? that. Which library is that in? I want to read that so bad. Yeah. Yeah, I'd be curious what, what that's all about. Uh, well, obviously, it's a, about wars. I've got an apocryphal Bible, and it does not have the book of the wars. It, of course, it yeah. also doesn't have the book of Enoch, which they talk about in Jude, and I'm really annoyed because I feel like I'm missing cool stuff. Yeah. Yeah, so it just gives a little, a little brief, um, a little brief poem out of that book. Waheb and Sufa, the brooks of the Arnon, and the slope of the brooks that reaches to the dwelling of Ar, and lies on the border of Moab. Roses are red. Yeah. And violets are blue. <laughs> I've read it several times. I'm like, I don't even don't know, know what any of that means. I don't really get it. I think it's just like a description. It's just sort of a description of where they went. They left, they left one place, went to another place. Uh, but so, I mean, that's really the, 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 the gist of that. We know that the Israelites are moving around and, uh, going from place to place. But yeah. That idea of the book of the wars of the Lord is like, wow, what's that? I know. So, so yeah, no real drama here though. They're just moving around. Uh, but the next thing, King Sihon, they, they, um, they ask permission to ask, to pass through Amorite land. And King Sihon refuses, and he doesn't just he doesn't just say no. He says heck no, and comes and attacks them. Well, I think we've learned by now that somebody attacking Israel is probably not the greatest idea, because they're ready, and well, they've got God on their side. 
But they, they defeat him. And it says from Arnon, from the Arnon River to the Jabbok. Now I was looking at, I was looking at a map. And that was a pretty big territory that they took from him. I mean, he comes and attacks them, but they take his territory. And I don't know what kind of square mileage it is, but that distance, like as the crow fries, is pretty close to 50 miles of area that they took. That's quite, that's a lot. I mean, yeah. that'd be from, you know, here to Denverish. And oh, that's all ours now. You know, like or everything along the I 25 corridor between, between uh, where we are in Denver. And uh, that's ours. Thank you very much. Just because you wouldn't let us walk through. Yep, we just wanted to walk through, and you had to be a jerk about it, and it's not our fault, so now now it's ours. Yeah, I, I was curious. Um, here, there's references to the Amorites, and there's references to the Ammonites. Mm-hmm. And I was curious this week when I was reading, like, who, who are these people? We see these names over and over, but who are they? And both of these races descend from Lot. Ah, Remember Lot's shenanigans mm-hmm. with uh-huh. his daughters? And it is interesting how many of the people here that the Israelites have to fight off are essentially family. Mm-hmm. They're at least ancestors of family. I mean, they get so far removed. But, you know, these are these are people that probably should know some of the stories. They, You know, they are, especially if they're ancestors of Lot, you would think that some of that story would have gotten to them. And, uh, we thought that they were watching them kind of, you know, do circles in the wilderness. They knew they were out there. Yeah. They knew who they were. Yep. Yeah. So the, no, Moabites, but- the Moabites come up here also. And the Moabites, I mean, obviously everyone's related, right? This isn't, this isn't anything new. But the Moabites came from, I suspect that this group got split off at the Tower of Babel and just like went their own way, but they're descendants from Ham. Well, that goes back a ways then, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, now, uh, verse 25 I thought was interesting because I've always thought of the Israelites just wandering around and living in tents all the time, but it says that Israel dwelt in all the cities of the Amorites. Yes. So, I mean, they weren't they weren't just, at least uh, the way I'm seeing is they weren't just staying in tents. They occasionally got to stay in a house, which makes... Some of the um, the laws we talked about earlier, you know, like if your house gets a leprous spot in it, well, here we go. They were, you know, they're in a house. Yeah. And uh, so much so for wandering the, in the wilderness in tents for 40 years, which is the way I've always pictured it. Yeah. Yeah. That was. Yeah. That was the exact same thing I was thinking. It's like, well, OK, so it changes our perspective a little bit to know that they did actually live in some cities during this 40 years, but it still wasn't. You know, it was, still wasn't what they were what they were promised. Was that uh, all of them, though? That's a million people. Yeah, I don't know. I it's mean, like, I, I would literally taken over a city. Yeah, I would suppose probably some of them lived in the city. Well, some it says all the cities. It says Israel captured all the cities of the Amorites and occupied them. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I, I could almost I could imagine. You're not going to probably keep everybody, you know, you're going to get a city and somebody, people are just probably going to say, well, this is where I'm going to stay, you know. It doesn't have to be the romantic notion that every single person who who left Egypt just stayed with them the entire time. 
as they went, they'd probably pick up some and probably drop off some. You that's know? your ideal. That's your idea of a romantic notion. I'm not talking romantic like flowers and candy and chocolates. And, and, well, you uh, said romantic. I'm just saying. <laughs> if you need some advice sometime, you let me know. <laughs> hey, that's a uh, yeah. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna take. I'm going to take my wife out for a night on the town and we're going to go uh, live in a different city for a while. Yeah. And we're going to, we're going to, you know, go back to living in tents and uh, looking at snakes. You're right. That is romantic. See, I, I just hadn't thought about it that way. I know, I know. It's perspective. <laughs> Remember these, these are good tips, Tracy. Remember this. <laughs> I'm glad we have a Tracy. It's good. We have a woman here to, to help us understand the difference. I'm not even going to use my, um, analogy of what I tell my wife yeah after 30 years or near 30 years in the salt mines yes I've learned a lot (laughs) (laughs) well on that note before we get in more trouble with our wives who (laughs) I I know mine I know mine listens (laughs) does your wife listen oh yeah yeah so yeah yeah they'll they'll be we might have a spike in in listeners (laughs) you know what they said (laughs) they'll have there's going to be a convocation of of podcasters wives and uh we're in trouble tracy yeah thanks Mm -hmm. karen you're supposed to keep us out of this (laughs) why do we have you here karen (laughs) again you're welcome yeah yeah okay well Moses sends some sends some spies to Jazer, and it says the Amorites are driven out of there. There's not a whole lot about that one, but um, uh, sounds like they learned their lesson though from from before. You know, we sent spies in. Uh, let's not freak out. It says they sp- spies went in and they defeated the Amorites. Now <clears throat> we learn a little bit here about King Og. <laughs> I just I don't know why, but I just love that name, King Og. It sounds so. Uh, Tolkienish to me for some reason. I, of course, I you know it makes me think of an, like an orcish king or something right away. But I'm sure he wasn't. I don't know. It's just they there are some interesting names. And Og. I mean, who names your kid Og? I uh, mean, his parents. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yep. At least two people. At least two people. Og. Well, it says that he was the king of Bashan, which was north of Sihon's land, so north of where they were just at. North of where they just were, I should say. They, oh, God says, don't fear him, for I have delivered him into your hand. So right away, uh, it just, it's going to go well for the Israelites there. And uh, they're starting to kick some butt and take names here. Again, it's a little short, little short thing. There's not a lot of detail. Just uh, go in and take it. It's yours. I'm giving it to you. Do you guys remember? Do you guys remember that? I think it's a little later we run into King Og, and like he's a giant. Do you remember that? I don't. Yeah, like there's some story in the Bible. I well, we'll probably get to it, but there's some story in the Bible about King Og of Fashion, and he's Mm -hmm. a giant, and it makes it makes a point of talking about how big his bed was. Oh, you remember that? That's Og. Is that Og? That's totally Og. See, now I mean, it doesn't me. mean it's the same Og, but I think it was King Og of Fashion. I thought it was the same dude. Yeah, you got me. I wonder right. if it's one of his. De- I wonder if it's like him or one of his descendants. These these older books of the Bible, 
and this is, you know, this is supposed to be, you know, chronological and stuff like that. But these these older books of the Bible, there's sometimes the same thing is happening when it's recorded from different different perspectives in different books. So I mean, we'd have to look at that. But I remember that being a different battle. Deuteronomy. Yeah, I'm is looking. It? His bed was nine cubits long, eighteen feet. It's yeah. A big dude. It was also mentioned in Genesis fourteen thirteen. What, what did it say about him there? Just that he was a refugee where when Abraham was uh, traveling. Oh, in, okay. In the land. Well, he apparently did well for himself. I guess so. Uh, well, yeah, I'm looking at, I don't know, I pulled up Bible Gateway over here. I don't see anything in Genesis, but um, it could just be the version I'm looking at. So Anyway, actually, he gets mentioned quite a bit all the way into the Psalms. At least. So, I guess we're not going to, that's not the last we've heard of Og. We know. Deuteronomy, they said. Yeah. So, yeah, we get just that little blurb here, but we'll hear more about him. Numbers 22. This is one of probably the most interesting stories in the Bible. One of the most bizarre stories of the Bible. And honestly, there's parts in this Bible that are very hard for me to understand the way God works in this. This is a story of Balaam. Now, have we talked about Balaam yet? Because I know this isn't the only time. This isn't the only time that Balaam is mentioned. He's he he has come up as a as a reference, but I don't think we've read anything about him directly. I think he yeah. just kind of came up as a side point. I'm just looking here real quick now. Well, my thing, I got some fat fingering my phone. I should just do the podcast too. Um, so anyway, Balaam is apparently this prophet that lives in the area. He's not part of the Israelites, and uh, tells us that Moab was exceedingly afraid. Moab is is ruled by Balak, so don't get those two mixed up. You got Moab, you got Balaam, you got Balak, and Balak and Moab are interchangeable. It's kind of like you use. The king, or you use, you use the kingdom to refer to the king. But he sends these messengers to Balaam. And he wants Balaam to curse the Israelites for him. So he sends all these gifts. He sends these important looking people. And they go ask Balaam. And Balaam's like, well, wait, I'll go talk. I'll go I'll see what God has to say about this. And God says, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. And so he sends people on their way. He says, no, I, I can't go with you. Well, Balak sends some more distinguished me- uh, messengers. It says, and at least of mine, it said uh, more princes and basically more of them. So a bigger group of m- very important looking people with more gifts. And <laughs> Balak says to, to Balaam, he says, I'll do whatever you say. Just curse these people for me. Uh, but Balaam, at this point, he says, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord, my God, to do less or more. So he, he just keeps telling him, I, look, I can't do I can't do what God doesn't tell me to do or I can't do, you know, I, I can't just go on my own to do this. So but he says, wait here, I'll I'll see what God says. Well, this time God says, go with them, but only do what I tell you. And this is where it gets confusing to me, because Balaam loads up his donkey, and he goes with these people, but then immediately, God gets angry with him for going. Why? Anybody know why? 
You mean since he told him to go and stuff? Yeah, he said go, and then he goes, and God gets angry at him for it. Well, I guess I'm curious if he's angry at him for going or if he's angry at him for what he's planning to do. Right. That could be. That could be. I don't know. See, but, but I see Balaam is playing both sides, though. Totally. Okay. Yeah. He, you know, he was going after the worldly riches. He couldn't refuse it. He already knew that he, what God told him, you know, you, you can't speak against what I have blessed. He knew that, but he wasn't willing to part with the riches. So he's, you know, he's trying to play the king and really, in essence, trying to play God as well. Yeah. And it doesn't turn out good. So God was basically reading his intentions, knowing full well that even though God said to go, but don't do what anything I said that I don't say, or don't do except anything but what I tell you to do, he knew that. Balaam was going with the full intention of trying to curse the people if he could. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So there's there's actually references about Balaam's weakness for taking money to prophesy and things like that. There's references to that all throughout the Bible. He was a really interesting character. Um, so a few years ago, I put together a Christmas program. And um, and I ran into Balaam. So what I was what I was actually studying was how the wise men who were their their religion or i guess their their institution that they were part of you know magicians and soothsayers and wise men and whatever that was they were called zoroastrians yes and and balaam was one of them so he's this interesting combination like balaam so i mean that that um that organization was around for thousands of years mm-hmm. and 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 because Balaam, this is an interesting way to look at this. Like if you ever think that your words aren't ever going to be noticed in history, here's a good example of it. Here we've got Balaam. He simultaneously has to say what God tells him to say because he is God's prophet. And yet he belongs, but yet he's obviously crooked. He takes, you know, he really just wants to be corrupt. He wants to take money to prophesy where he shouldn't and how he shouldn't. And yet, if you go forward in time to where the wise men, the Magi, are researching the the birth of the Messiah, mm-hmm. they find him in Balaam's words. And we're about to read Balaam's words. Mm-hmm. So, and they're, you know, 1,500 years, what Balaam says coming up, and I'll point it out when we get to it, is 1,500 years before the birth of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's and yet, interesting. Stuff. So, yeah, so it's, I mean, like, he's kind of an annoying character because he's referenced all the way throughout the Bible for being crooked. He's referenced in revelation for teaching Balak how to seduce the Israelites away from the worship of the true worship of God. Right. He's, he's not held up as a shiny example. And yet it's also his true prophecies that come from God. The ones that he cannot keep silent that, that bring the Magi to, to Israel when Jesus is, it's really cool. I think case in point is that, you know what? You might put on a, a false persona on the outside, but God knows what's on the inside. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's not, you know, it's not always the best intentions. And his was worldly possessions. But God was still able to use him when he needed to relay a message, even though was not a prophet per se. Uh, he was he was still a prophet. 
Yeah. But a good one. Yeah, it is interesting how God is able to use people who even aren't really following him all the way to do God's will. It's interesting. It's uh, it's a it's a good testament testament to that. All right, so but so Balaam goes with the people. God gets angry and he sets the angel of the Lord says the angel of the Lord stands in the way of the path. And this donkey that he's riding, uh, that Balaam is riding, sees this angel and turns off into the field. Instead of going on the path that he's, that he's supposed to be going on, this donkey just decides to, well, not going that way, I'm going to go over here. And Balaam starts beating on the donkey to get it back on the road. They go down a little ways, it seems, and the angel blocks that path again. And this time it's a real narrow path where they have to go between some walls. I'm I'm imagining a little, uh, you know, like a, a little pass between a couple of rock walls. You know, it's kind of rocky, mountainous area, sort of. And um, the donkey swerves to miss the angel, and he ends up crushing Balaam's foot between himself and the rocks. That's got to feel great. And Balaam hits this donkey again. They go a little bit, and the angel this time blocks the path, and there's absolutely no way around this angel, and the donkey just lays down, lies down. And Balaam starts hitting the donkey with a staff, and this is where the story gets weird. <laughs> Not that, you know, angel, angel, the angel of the Lord being in the middle of the road, but, you know, at this point, Balaam hasn't been able to see it, but the donkey starts to talk. Now... I grew up watching Disney movies. I still watch Disney movies. T talking cartoon animals, see it all the time. I've never seen a real do talking donkey. Never, never. Uh, I can't even really imagine. It does. It has me curious what it would look like, you know. Well, in my head, because I've watched Shrek too many times, it always, oh, sounds, there you go. <laughs> always sounds like Eddie Murphy, and it's a real Sorry. sassy donkey. And in the morning, it's making waffles. Making I don't know. Waffles. That's just, it's just where I go. <laughs> <laughs> Balaam's donkey sounds like Eddie Murphy. <laughs> he does. I mean, in my head, he does. Sure, why not? <laughs> I hadn't even thought of that. That's hilarious. <laughs> hey, why are you hitting me? That was a terrible Eddie Murphy. Sorry. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah, making waffles. <laughs> but basically, the dog is like, hey, what have I done? Why do you keep hitting me? And, and well, here, here's what really cracks me up. Because a donkey starts talking to me. I'm not sure I'm going to answer. But Balaam answers the donkey. And that's almost that's almost as crazy to me as the donkey is the donkey talking. I probably that first should tell you how mad he is. Yeah, uh, yes. He, he, he appears. Obviously, we don't get the full details here, but he appears like when the donkey talks to him, he appears to just be so mad that he answers him. Yeah. 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 So he just answers him. He's like, he's like, uh, you know, if I could right now, I would kill you. That's how mad he gets. If I could, if I could, I would just, I would kill you. And, uh, oh, no. really, obviously really, really angry. But the donkey, the donkey is the one here. Who actually speaks some wisdom. Let me see what the donkey said here. Am I not your own donkey, which you have always ridden to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? See, logic from a donkey. Yeah. 
We're in the I was on the chapter, but yeah. So the donkey actually starts speaking the wisdom here. That 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 kind of blew me away too. At this point, then Balaam is allowed to see the angels. Now he's gotten some a little perspective of what's going on here. And the angel says, "I have come to stand against you because your way is perverse before me." Now I go back to thinking, but he's going. He's he was going to. He was told to go, but. I think you guys are right. God no, I love I love this explanation. So I've got this side by side, um, this parallel version of the Bible, and in one in one place it says, "I have come here to oppose you because your path is a reckless one before me." Mm. And then if yeah. I read, then that has a footnote. And if I go down and read the footnote, it says the meaning of the Hebrew for this clause is uncertain. Right, so nobody quite knows what it means, but the the four different versions that I have are one says your path is a reckless one before me, and then one says I have come to block your way because you are stubbornly resisting me. One says I have come to stand against you because your way is perverse before me. That's the same version you have, and then the other one says I have come to block your way because you're getting way ahead of yourself. Which kind of feeds into that whole idea of recklessness. Like he's gonna, and we already know from, from when he gets there, he like, he tries to work it both ways. He tries to show up as a prophet of God and yet help this king who wants to go against the Israelites. So he tries to work both sides to get paid. Yeah. Get paid. Right. Well, yeah. Verse 33 had some interesting, uh, meaning to it to me too. He says the don. The, this is the angel speaking. He says the donkey saw me, and this is all capitals. Capital M for me. Capital A for angel. I'm pretty sure this is Jesus. The donkey saw me and turned aside for me these three times. If she had not turned aside for me, surely I would have also killed you by now and let her live. It gets me thinking of the times when you have those days when it's just like nothing is going right. You're like, why can't, you know, you, you, you've got some simple task that you've got to do and things just keep getting in the way of doing it. And 20, what's that? Like 2020. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I was, I mean, my, my strongest experience with that is having PMS because I swear to you that when I have PMS, I cannot do something as simple as carry a cup from one room to the next without somehow screwing it up. Like, mm. see? So it's like my own little personal 2020 every month. But it just just brings to mind the idea that maybe sometimes the reason is those simple things that you're trying to do get delayed by just the craziest thing. It's like, why? That's so stupid. Why can't I just do this thing? Maybe there's something holding you back from doing that. Maybe there's some reason. Maybe there's something to be taken from it. but, But most of all, just... Maybe you're in some way being protected, you know, and that's kind of that's kind of the connotation I'm getting from some of this where, you know, if that donkey hadn't turned away, if your day hadn't gotten ruined, you'd be dead. Yeah. And I and like, have you have you guys ever looked up the stories from 9-11? Like there were there were so many stories of individuals where they were saying I was supposed to be in this building or that building. And right. I never do this, 
but I did that morning. I just stopped and I made a little detour and I went here. Or this simple little thing went wrong and I went over here to fix it. And because of that, this sort of chain of events happened and I was not in the building. So, yes. So I, I think it's going to be very interesting when we get to heaven and find out how many times we've beaten our donkey and shouted at it. Yeah. Actually, it was an angel standing there blocking what we were trying to do. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Balaam, he sort of repents here. He says, I have sinned, for I did not know you stood in the way against me. That sort of seems like a, in a way, that's kind of a bad uh, reason to to confess a sin. You know, well, I didn't know you were there, so... Um, but that's one I'm of those claim ignorance. Yeah, we, well, we were just talking about this the other week. Like, what is an unintentional sin? Like, mm-hmm. he's he's he is he's twisted it around in his mind to where he's doing God's will. He's going to go out there and he's going to prophesy, and and yes, he's going to try and you know walk on both sides of the stream at the same time. But he is quote unquote doing God's will. He is a prophet of God, and he's going. He told the king. I can only say what God tells me to say. So he's given his cop out, right? Yeah, so right. He can try and go and get his paper and and, but you see what I'm getting at? Like, yeah, he's uh, he's just trying to do his thing. Like Tracy said, he's playing both sides. Well, the angel tells him, and I'm I'm going to stick to my idea that this is Jesus, but it tells him, says, "Go with the men, but only the word that I speak to you, that you shall speak." So this is getting reiterated. I'm letting you go. Uh, but you are going to do what I tell you to do. Don't try to do anything different. Well, Balak meets Balaam at Moab, and Balaam reminds him, the word that God puts in my mouth, that I must speak. And, and Balak's like, oh, okay, whatever, whatever. He says, it takes him to the high places of Baal. And to me, this is like one of the biggest mistakes that Balak uh, could have made. Take him, let's, let's take, let's take this prophet, Let's take him to some place that is uh, uh, very important for this idolatrous religion. And from that place, we're going to try to get this guy to to curse the people that God has blessed. So I think this is kind of one of, well, one of his first mistakes. Not really his first mistake. His first mistake is wanting to try to curse Israel in the first place. But but uh, but taking him specifically to this place seems like a, seems like a big mistake. Balaam says, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to make seven altars, and we're going to take seven bulls, and we're going to take seven rams. We're going to, we're going to sacrifice a bull and a ram on each one of those altars. Then we're going to see what God has to say. Well, in the first place, those sacrifices, that whole thing seemed kind of arbitrary, because that's not that, well, I don't think we've ever, we've never seen a time when God, people tried to make a sacrifice that God didn't ask for that, Anything really came good from that sacrifice, you know, and uh, but they do this thing and God ends up speaking through Balaam. And it's kind of a there's kind of a uh, I'm not going to say long, several verses long uh, thing that says here, but the, but the central message of it is how shall I curse whom God has not cursed? Mm hmm. And so just like God has been saying this whole time, you're not going to say anything I don't want you to say. I have blessed these people. We're not going to curse these people. 
And, and uh, that's just the way it is. Well, Balak's not happy with that. He's angry because now Balaam has blessed these people instead of cursing him. So all this effort that they put in, all this expense that he's tried, he's given to to uh, Balak or to Balaam, is uh, is being counterproductive. But he's got an idea. Like, okay, okay, this obviously didn't work. Let's go to a different spot. So he takes him to a different place to give him a different view. As if this is somehow going to make some kind of difference. Well, if we no, look I at think him it, over here. I think it does. I think it does. I actually thought this was really interesting. He says, because we know, we've read a lot about how the the uh, camp of the Israelites was organized. Yep. And we also know there was this mixed multitude, right? Mm-hmm. Right. It was sort of tagging along the groupies or whatever. Yeah. And it says, come with me to another place where you can see them. You will You will not see them all, but only the outskirts of their camp. And from there, curse them for me. And I just wonder if there was a visible difference. Well, I suppose. I guess if if Balaam is the type of person to get swayed in a way where looking at something differently that he already knows is there, though, you know, to me it was kind of like here a couple of weeks ago. It was at uh, Mount Rushmore, and you know, you go in and you see it face on. But then there's a you take a little drive around, and there's a different spot where you can pull off on the road and they call it like the profile viewing point or something like that and you can look up there's kind of a v v in the rocks but you can see the side of george washington's face it's all that you can see of uh, the carvings on mount rushmore but it didn't change my perspective of knowing that there's three other faces up there it was just kind of a cool different view one of the um, one of the par- so two of my four versions of the bible here two are translations and two are paraphrases one of the paraphrases puts a kind of a little bit different twist on this. It says, okay. there you will see another part of the nation of Israel, but not all of them. Curse at least that many. Hmm. Mm. So, well, okay, so if that's the case, that then, then I can get kind of on board with that, where, okay, you're going to see just that part of the people. Let's curse them. Maybe not everybody, but let's at least curse them. That makes more sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah, he says, curse them for me from here or from there. And they make another seven altars. They kill another seven bulls, another seven rams. Poor animals. <laughs> yeah. All this sacrificing. And uh, basically, you know, it comes to nothing. Mm-hmm. But again, the message that comes through is he has blessed and I cannot reverse it. <laughs> Balak's not happy about this. And here, Balaam is finally starting to wise up a little bit. He's like, look, I told you, I can't say anything that, that God, other than what God puts in my mouth. But Balak is not satisfied yet. He's like, okay, 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 okay. Let's go to a third place. And they make another seven altars. They sacrifice another seven bulls and another seven rams. And... It says, Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel. It's like this time, Balaam, in the, these past two times, Balaam would kind of go off, and I'm guessing he would pray. I'm guessing he would, he would quote unquote, be seeking God's, uh, God's message. This time, it's like he didn't even go off. He's just like, look, I see it now. God wants to bless these people. So he doesn't even bother going away. He just lets God speak this time. And this time he says, blessed is he who blesses you, talking uh, about Israel. Blessed is he who blesses you, and cursed is he who curses you. 
that's not going to probably go over well with Balak. He says, I called you to curse Israel. You have, he says, you have bountifully blessed them three times. <laughs> so I think I could just sort of imagine Balak's frustration in this. Well, hang on. I love verse 11. Okay. Verse 11 to me is like, I just love this. It says, and this is Balak, he's mad. It says, now leave it once and go home. I said I would reward you handsomely, but the Lord has kept you from being rewarded. Everybody here knows who's actually pulling the strings and who's in control. And they openly acknowledge Mm. God's power and authority. Right. The Lord, capitalized, the Lord has kept you from being rewarded. And that is so interesting to me how often the people in the area would, they would have their idolatrous worship. They would constantly try to work against the way the the ways of God, they knew full well that this God was active in the area. I mean, they they've constantly been seeing the things that He's done. Mm-hmm. They're fully aware of of everything that's been happening to, happening to the Israelites traveling through this area. It's a rel- you know, it's not that big of an area, you know. Um, yeah, Balak knows. And Balaam warned him up front. I just, I just love this. Even yeah, yeah. did I not tell the messengers you sent me? Even if Balak gave me all the silver and gold in his palace, I could not do anything of my own accord, good or bad, to go beyond the command of the Lord. I must say only what the Lord says. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he finished that off. He says, "Now, indeed, I am going to my people. Come, I will advise you what this people will do to your people in the latter days." And now this is where we get. Now this part is the part that that the Magi found. Yeah. This is the part. Yeah, and this is unmistakable from a Christian point of view. I would be curious to know how modern day Jews would view this, but this is unmistakable from our hindsight to look at this in any in any other way. And there's a lot there. You know, there's a lot of things that are like kind of immediate for Balak, but there's some other things here that are clearly talking down the road. Talks about a star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. Out of Jacob, one shall have dominion. Those are unmistakable messianic prophecies. This is absolutely right. talking I, I, about... I think, I think the only argument with like Orthodox Judaism is whether Jesus was that Messiah. True, true. Well, that's why that's why I say I'd be curious to know what they think this means then, because, you know, when we look back at it and we compare it to the story of Jesus, we're like, well, obviously, obviously that was talking about him. Yeah. Uh, and they would look at that and go, nope, nope not at all. Yet. Hasn't yeah. happened. Yep. Yeah. So, I don't know. Interesting to me. Interesting. But uh, very, very specific uh, from our point of view that these are, this is talking about Jesus and talking about. This is beyond earthly kingdoms. It's beyond, you know, things that were going to be relevant to Balak immediately. There are other things in the prophecy that are talking about, you know, things that are going to happen there. You know, Edom shall be a possession. Seir also, his enemy shall be a possession. You know, all these different things talking about how Israel is basically going to, Israel is going to clean up here. But it's going to be more than that. And of I, there's no way Balak understood what he was talking about here, but you know, 
this idea that there's going to be this one rise up out of this these people that you wanted me to curse this this one is going to rise up and be over all everything he says that Amalek was first and is now the last uh says Cain K A I N not not C A I N Cain or the Kenites shall be burned they'll be carried away captive so, and it says who shall live when God does this that's quite that's quite the uh statement there. So, in in Revelation, you know, you remember how in Revelation they go through the the seven churches of Revelation, the seven phases of the church through history. Mm-hmm. Well, the um, the church in Pergamum mm-hmm. has this little blurb, and there's there's more to there's more to this interaction between Balaam and Balak than is recorded here, because starting in verse fourteen and in chapter two it says. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some of you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food and sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality, right? So Mm -hmm. when Balaam's, apparently, when Balaam's direct blessings or curses failed, because he wasn't allowed to say anything that God didn't tell him to say, he was still able to give Balak, he was able to teach Balak how to entice the Israelites away. And I wish, I mean, I know that the Bible skips over a lot of stuff, but I wish that we had more detail. Like, I I would like to have heard that part of their conversation. Yeah. Yeah, we only get like little Cliff's Notes version of these things. Mm-hmm. But still, I think it was, once again, going back to that, he could not part from worldly possessions. I am going to get paid one way or the other. Yeah. Now, I can't directly curse you or curse the Israelites, but you know what? I'm going to give you a little bit of information that you might need so I can secure my payment. Yeah. Yeah. It talks about it in in Jude about uh, even the book of Jude makes a reference to... um, Hang on, I'm trying to find it here. Makes a reference to Balaam being crooked. Like everybody just kind of knew he was this crooked guy. He was a genuine, a genuine prophet of God, but he he just wasn't straight. Mm-hmm. Um, woe to them! They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have yeah. been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. See, here's all these historical figures that are famous for their rebellion against God or misbehaving in certain ways. And all the way into the book of Jude, Balaam is listed right there with them. Yeah. Um, like Balaam. So one of my, one of the other versions says, like Balaam, they deceive people for money. So there's the crooked prophesying. Well, I do. I still, I find it fascinating that God would use a guy like this. Yeah. To, to, to give this message. You know, when his whole intention was to go and curse Israel and, but instead God says, I got I, I got a thing for you to do, and you're going to do it. And uh, yeah, what you had in mind is, isn't going to happen. That is, it's it yeah, it's pretty cool that um, to think that God can use people who aren't necessarily following Him. He can and will use people who aren't necessarily following Him to do what He needs to be what He needs to be done. The last chapter in our reading today, chapter twenty five, talks about. It says Israel's harlotry in Moab. Now, harlotry is, you know, prostitution, basically. Uh, and I take this to be 
both literal and figurative because it talks about how Israel, they're in a place called Acacia Grove. It says that they, how does it put it? They began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. Uh, they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So these Israelites who have been traveling through the wilderness, following God, having a literal pillar of smoke and fire to follow every single day, uh, has led them through battles. They've kind of gotten into a place where it seems like they're maybe getting a little comfortable, and they start messing around. They get into Baal worship, which... It seems to me that around in that area, worshiping Baal is just about one of the worst things you could possibly do. I mean, we've we've talked a little bit about the, some of the ways that uh, the people in the area, what they did for worshiping Baal, you know, like sacrificing their children and just all kinds of awful stuff. It says the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. And I think at this point, because later on in the chapter, it starts talking about a plague. And I'm thinking that anger of the Lord here is where this plague begins. Um, and people will start dying off. But God says, hang the offenders. So there was quite a few people who were leading the others into this Baal worship, and God is like, take those people out, hang them in the sun. And Moses tells the judges, it says, every one of you kill his men who were joined to Baal of Peor. So they're not taking this lightly. It's, it's a, this is a serious offense here. And uh, at one point, a man named Zimri brings this Midianite woman into the camp. And it almost seems to me like maybe he's flaunting this. Yep. Present her in front of the, the other people. Yeah, he's definitely trying to not trying to hide it. He's like flaunting that he's brought this woman in to the camp. And then, you know, if we're talking harlotry, I'm guessing this to be he hired her services, if you will. Well, what's the deal with, like, part of the story is very specifically mentioned. Then an Israelite man brought into the camp a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance of the, to the tent of meeting. Like, what's that part all about? I'm taking that there, there this weeping at the tabernacle, at the tent or at the tabernacle. This is after God has said, uh, this is after God has said, let's kill these leaders. Oh, yeah. Okay, so then here comes more corruption. Like, hot on the heels of that corruption, here comes this corruption. Yeah, well, people are people are actively trying to repent. People are actively notice, you know, they've been brought to their senses again, but they brought to their senses and are realizing that they have sinned, they've done something wrong, and here comes Zimri in with this prostitute. I, I'm saying prostitute. I wasn't there. I don't know, but that's the way I'm taking this. And it's almost like yeah, here I am with my with my woman for 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 the hour or whatever, and um, he's just flaunting in front of everybody, at when when they're all trying to um, come down from the their high of of uh, all this all this false worship. Well, Phinehas, who is the grandson of Aaron, he does not take this lightly at all. He grabs it, says it grabs a javelin, goes into the tent where they are, and runs them both through with that javelin at the same time. Blammo, right through both of them. So that that should tell you what they were probably in the middle of doing. But it says then, when he did that, the plague stopped. Now there was really, like I said, there wasn't a specific mention of a plague at this point. 
But it was apparently something was going on because 24,000 people were dying from this plague. And as soon as Finehouse took that action, that plague stopped. You know, I'm wondering if it just it was to the point where it started off subtly, you know, it, with it not being on full display. And then when he did this, it was an act of just outward, pretty much rebellion and going against what God said to the point where people were stunned and they weren't doing anything until Phineas decided, you know what? Can't take it anymore. Mm-hmm. I got to do something. Somebody you know, and I think it was just to that to that point where now you're flaunting it in front of everybody, in front of the elders, you know, that are here. Right. I think that's exactly right. And uh, he gets it, it's interesting here because it says that he was zealous for his God. He said it was God saying he was zealous with my zeal. And here's the part that really kind of kind of uh, flipped my lid here a little bit. It says he made atonement for the children of Israel. By doing that in the past here, when we've talked about making atonement, it's all it's all been about making a particular sacrifice, you know, an official uh, take it to the altar, uh, you know, go through the rituals sacrifice. But here was just it was an act to try to end something that was that was happening in the camp, something that now by our standards is a very violent uh and very direct way of of uh, making a statement but god it seems god accepted that here because well it's like you said it just finally i just, we just can't take this anymore it struck it just struck me very interesting that that this is what was allowed to be atonement to make atonement for the people but don't you remember like this happens again a few a few times throughout the Bible where, it, and I, the most direct reference that I can think of to it, I can think of a few times in the New Testament, but there's one in the Old Testament that's really a dramatic example of it, and that's Achan. Do you remember after they took Jericho and, like, they weren't supposed to take any plunder? Mm-hmm. Right, None. right, right. That Achan takes, like, I think it's like some silver Gold. and some clothes or something like that, and he buries them in his tent. And Joshua... There's a there's a disruption in the force, right? And Joshua is like, there's sin in the camp. There's sin in the camp. And it has to be eradicated so that, mm-hmm. you know, this is yeah. and, and intentional sin, not unintentional sin, where you reveal the angel and the person goes, oh, I, I sinned. I didn't know there was an angel there. It wasn't like that. This was intentional sin. And it was not resolved, even though they won the battle. It was not resolved until Achan and his family were revealed and the issue was addressed. I don't know. I just think that there's, it's like our modern sort of individualistic way of doing things is, is kind of offended by that. Like, well, why am I responsible for what that person's doing? But there was the community here. This was, this was God's people as a whole and they were being judged as a whole in addition to being judged in smaller and smaller groups, right down to the individual. And so when it comes to the Israelite camp as a whole, like there's a time and place where the other people are supposed to call this person out and, and address it and say, no, this is sin and we will not accept it in our presence. Like in the, in the, um, I think it's in Jeremiah, there's a, there's a big call where it says, um, 
you know, my priests are, you know, my priests are corrupt and, you know, my leaders are whatever. And the people love to have it that way. Mm. And it's like, it, it just, this corruption spread. We were talking about this last week with social contagion. Like if I'm in a, in a tight group with people and I continually watch, like I'm holding the line, but I continually watch someone else compromise the line and nothing bad happens to them, then I'm, then, then, well, why not? It kind of looks enticing. It's sin, right? It's enticing. And if there's no penalty, well, then why wouldn't I just walk right over there and stand real close and then maybe put one toe in? And, you know, and that's kind of the social contagion thing. And that is very applicable to faith, even though it seems so heavy handed to be like, all right, you brought a Midianite woman into the camp, you die. You know, and I think, too, it's just that act of just letting even that small bit of sin in that, you know what, it's going to corrupt the whole thing. If and your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. You know, and I look at yeah. this and the Midnight woman, the, this wasn't just your average woman. It was she was her father was the head of. Um, I'm trying to look. Wait. We know who she was. I totally missed that. What did I miss? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 2515, the Midianite woman. Um, her name was Cosby, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Daughter of Zer. She was the head of the people, the father's house of, in Midian. Yeah. So, so she's kind of an average, you know, person for Midian or female for Midian. I think it was, you know, one of those high, I guess, high up kind of families. You know, to put on public display again. And it was like, okay, this has just gone way too far and we're not correcting it. We need to pull that correction back in. And when we, when we've seen that throughout the will, the movement through the wilderness, it has to be a big move and it requires, and let's just call it what it is. It requires some blood. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. People are going to die. Yeah. Well, and it shows here too that God, values attitudes more than he values rituals you know he does say at some point he says i i hate your sacrifices i hate yes. i hate i hate your rituals i hate, and these are all things that he told them to do yeah you know but this isn't this is a prime example of where the intent could the intent is what is what's the most important here where we, we yeah. cannot have this kind of thing happening. And God says, yep, you're right. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to count this as uh, atonement. You have, you have shown that, that your attitude about this is different. And it didn't require them to then go through a ritual right. of, of a sacrifice of, of, you know, let's take this piece out of the animal and put it over here. And let's put, take this piece of the animal and burn it over here. And let's give this piece to the priest. We didn't have to go through all of that because that was never, that was never the point of any of the sacrifices. It was always an idea of pointing the people to a greater ideal to follow something that was good rather than something that was just what everybody else was doing or in the area. Yeah, that one with that, that zeal talking, as well. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Karen. Um, the that text that you're talking about, Matt, is in Amos, where I hate your songs, I hate your worship. You know, mm -hmm. I would rather have your hearts. And then, and then one of my favorite texts in the Bible is in Micah. It's like I've shown you how to be good, 
It's not rivers of oil and rivers of blood and the death of your firstborn. It's not that. It's I've shown you how to be good. You know, love justice, do mercy, walk humbly with your God. That's, you know, always back to the heart of it, always back to the heart of it. Right. I think it's those actions and that zeal that we have that don't make it a ritual and just going through the motions. But I think what's happening is they've, they've lost all their connection with God and they're just going through the motions. They're forgetting what it means. They're just doing it to do it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It no longer has that deep meaning and pointing them to a savior. It's just a ritual. We're just going to do it because we have to do it and we'll get it over with. Mm -hmm. And that is, I think that I can't remember where the text is, but there's a text in the old, uh, well, why should, I don't even remember if it's the old or new Testament, but it says that the people have a form of godliness, but they deny the power of it. And that's yeah. the way I read that text is like, we're going through the motions. We're going through the motions. We're going through the motions, but we're not like our hearts aren't engaged. And that's that, that's that whole, like, if you think ahead, remember the parable of the 10 virgins and whatever, and they're all waiting for the bridegroom and, you know, all of them are there. All of them have been invited. They're, they're all ready and eager. Um, half of them brought oil. They all fall asleep. Right. And it's mm -hmm. like, and the bridegroom is like, no, go away. I don't, I don't know who you are. Yeah. You know, I just go ahead, Tracy. You know, and I think, too, when you get into that that ritualistic setting and you lose the true meaning, then you're not on guard to really see like we just went back and things that are pointing to the on, you know, oncoming savior. You miss them because you're still caught in just doing the daily grind, the going through the motions, not really taking it to heart, not really looking forward to what's being pointed out. And you have the ability to miss what's right in front of your face. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, what on the surface just looks like an extraordinarily violent act. Um, there's so much more to it than that. It was it, it was a. It was showing it was showing a posture of of, of uh, submission to God. Not that God asked them to kill those people, but it just it just showed that attitudes. It was showing showing an attitude of not being willing to accept a sinful presence, not to be a, uh, in uh, in their lives. Right. Any final thoughts here on the reading today? Mm -mm. No, nope. I loved it. I thought it was good yep. stuff. Okay. All right. Well, I think next week we will we may try to finish the book. There's 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 quite a few chapters, but uh, a lot of it is just kind of descriptions of things that happened. There's you know there's another census. There's descriptions of rituals. Not sure what we'll draw out of that or not, but uh, we may try to finish uh, the book of Numbers next week. So if you're following along, you can read that, read ahead, and be prepared. In the meantime, keep in mind that you can always reach us with questions and comments at attbpodcast at theadventure.org. Look for us on Facebook at Adventure Through the Bible. Please be sure to share the podcast with your friends and family. Help us to get the word out. And be sure to subscribe to us so that you can reach us, that uh, we reach you each and every week. We'll talk to you again next week. Thanks for listening.